Hello and welcome to We Are The University. I'm your host, Nick Safel. In this episode, Dr. Kamal Manir, Reader in Strategy and Policy at the Cambridge Judge Business School, joins us to talk about how racial inequality is reproduced in organisations and why it continues to escape scrutiny. We think about how the Black Lives Matter protests are prompting organisations to do some soul-searching and we explore some practical solutions to achieving racial equality at the workplace. I'm going to jump in right into this one. What is institutional racism and sort of how is it different from straight up racism? Um, I think institutional racism, the clue is in the name that it is institutionalized. When something becomes institutionalized, it comes to be taken for granted. It is not questioned anymore. So whereas if you see someone walking on the street being called names uh, based on their race, that would be pretty evident to you. Uh, as racism. In institutionalized racism, which mostly happens inside organizations and, uh, and, and of course, at a larger level in, in societies, you may not be able to tell. So white privilege is part of institutional racism. When people actually understand it uh, to be just part of, you know, normal life and part of a meritocratic uh, organization, um and this is this is how it is so it is it is much less visible it is much more subtle and it is embedded in organizational processes and routines thinking about the routines how do workplaces contribute to sort of racial inequality then based on what i understand of organizations um there are two ways in which organizations contribute to institutional racism. And there are two myths that pervade most organizations. One is that they are meritocratic and the other is that they are efficient. So when an organization and the members of the organization understand their workplace to be meritocratic, they automatically assume that everyone who gets promoted, everyone who gets hired, is on the basis of merit. And if we go deep into organizations, we see that that is not necessarily the case. Meritocracy tends to be a myth. And increasingly, there is more and more research coming out showing exactly why meritocracy uh, remains a myth in organizations. And when we look at organizations' uh, numbers, it becomes pretty apparent that there are certain people uh, based on race, you know, who are just performing much better than others. So if you look at Fortune 500 CEOs, 96% of them are non-Hispanic whites in America. If you look at top uh, management in various um, uh, sectors, you will take finance companies, only 2.4% of executive committee members 1.4% of managing directors and 1.4% of senior portfolio managers are black. Um, same in technology, only 1.9% of technology executives and 5.3% of tech professionals are African-American in America. Um, so similarly, the average black partnership rate at U.S. law firms between 2005 and 2016 has been estimated at 1.8%. So there are there are significant differences, and yet we continue to understand our organizations as meritocracies. And the second myth 
is that of efficiency. So we simply assume that everything that we do is essentially uh, geared towards greater efficiency in organizations. So what we what we realize is, or what we must realize is that at the level of hiring, uh, promotion, uh, the opportunities that you get in organizations, uh, your compensation, uh, there is vast evidence that they are not always um, geared towards efficiency. So these are the two myths, meritocracy and efficiency that tend to um, that tend to obscure what goes on in organizations. And on an everyday basis, workplaces contribute hugely to institutional racism, but escape scrutiny because we have bought these myths. You gave me a lot of stats about the Fortune 500s. And, um, I'm just thinking, compared to five or 10 years ago, is there any change happening in reality? Uh, the change is extremely slow, uh, Nick, if you compare today with you know five or 10 years ago. Certainly there is a change in terms of our appetite for doing something. And, uh, and that, is, that is encouraging, right? Uh, because, you know, as recent surveys show, the share of Americans who see racial discrimination in their country as being a problem has risen from 51% in January 2015 to 76% now. Similarly, 52% of Britons think British society is fairly or very racist. This is a big rise from similar polls in the past. Now, when we look at organizations, on the other hand, um, things are not quite moving as fast as we would like them to. So between 2004 and 2018, for example, black people experienced double the unemployment levels in Britain uh, than uh, white people. Similarly, uh, the UK's annual population survey revealed that black people in employment are still paid less on average than white people. And, uh, and the same thing when we look at performance in, in schools. So it is not quite uh, the same thing uh, or not quite the speed at which we would like things to move. In fact, the most revealing thing came out in the 2020 Parker Review, which was published earlier this year, of course, which found that 59% of the 256 firms they reviewed did not meet the Parker Review target which was merely to have at least one director of an ethnically diverse background on their board. Only 5% of FTSE 250 firms had a person of color as director, only 5%. And even more shocking, just 2% of FTSE 250 companies set measurable objectives for board ethnic diversity. So things are not quite moving as fast. In fact, if you look across the pond, it is shocking that the household income gap between black families and white families in America remains the same as it was in 1968. If you, if you look at integration or segregation of cities, uh, in 1970, American cities were almost completely segregated in that 93% of black residents would have needed to move to ensure complete integration. And when the at the time of the most recent census in 2010, this number was 70%. So yes, there has been some uh, progress, 
but not nearly enough. That, those are some incredibly alarming statistics and figures. Um, but do you think, I'm thinking now of 2020, do you think the BLM movement has sort of been any form of catalyst to get the conversation going within business? And on that, my sort of second question would be, are there any big differences in the way that the big companies are sort of approaching it? So in terms of BLM, yes, it has it has certainly made people um, you know sit up and rethink what is going on in organizations. So I have been giving talks in in some organizations, for instance, just making them aware that there is a problem out there. Uh, you'd be surprised at how many uh, successful people think there isn't really a problem and how many of them think that their organizations um, are complete meritocracies and uh, and only pursue one goal, which is that of efficiency. Now, what BLM has done is raise awareness that there is a problem. A lot of people still think that, you know, this is about... This is about the high-handedness of American police and uh, and police oppression of, of blacks, but it is not just that. As I told you, uh, the these the status of blacks, uh, there the gap between blacks and whites uh, remains at, at alarming levels, and and so BLM has certainly raised awareness of that. Now, whether that pressure is going to continue is up to us. So it is up to us to keep the pressure on because when it is, when there is external pressure, that is when organizations are forced to audit what is going on inside the organization. And, and yes, I mean, there will be lots of organizations and there are lots of organizations that essentially have decoupled uh, these things from the actual running of the organization. So they will issue diversity statements, for example. Um, and but what research shows is that organizations that do issue uh, diversity statements, uh, more ethnic minorities are likely to apply to those organizations. But in terms of promotion, uh, there or you know making it to senior management, there doesn't seem to be any correlation between an organization's um, uh, signaling that they are they are diverse and they value diversity and actually promoting people. So it is up to us to make sure that you know they walk the talk. So there is the pressure. Now, in terms of change in companies, yes, I mean, so companies are trying to figure out um, what can they do. Uh, not all companies. Uh, I, I cited, you know, figures from the Parker Review. So, you know, I mean, th this is this is still a small minority, but you know, I mean, many companies, uh, nevertheless, are trying to figure out what are the measures that they can put into place. And some of the measures, of course, are just getting a consultant in to do implicit bias training. Now, the the evidence on implicit bias training is is not very encouraging. Okay? So. With implicit bias training, um, you know, a thousand studies show that people soon forget the right answers on bias trainings. The positive effects of a diversity training rarely lasts beyond a day or two. And a number of studies, in fact, suggest that it can activate bias or spark uh, a backlash even. 
Now, companies are also experimenting with blind CVs. So not knowing, you know, who they are hiring. Now, we know that there is a practice called whitening of CVs and ethnic minorities engage in that a lot, which means simply removing all clues that point to their their race or uh, their minority status. And blind CVs are not always easy to um, to implement, of course, because you want to find out more about people that you are hiring. But there are a number of organizations that um, that are uh, doing that. So, you know, we will we will wait and see um, how much time it will take to become institutionalized and uh, and and practical. Uh, there are a number of other uh, things too that uh, companies are. Um, uh, focusing on. So some companies are actually forming corporate diversity task forces. Not enough. I mean, this is a very small minority. And these task forces simply help promote social accountability. So CEOs usually assemble these teams, inviting department heads to volunteer and including members of underrepresented uh, groups. And every quarter or two task forces look at diversity numbers for the whole company, for business units, and for departments to figure out what needs attention. People are also beginning to pay attention to mentoring and turning mentors into into champions and rewarding them on how well their mentees do. Again, uh, very, very few. Uh, But this is, is, you know, getting some traction out there. And uh, similarly, what, what companies are not doing right now, but they should be doing more of is increasing transparency because transparency and instituting social accountability uh, tends to decrease bias. So these are just some of the practices that I observe in in some companies, but not nearly in enough. How important is it for these sort of methods um, to be visible to the general public or stakeholders? So and what I mean by that, I guess, building on that, is it a sort of fine line between appearing to do something and actually making real changes? Well, the real changes are only going to be apparent in numbers. So when we look at numbers, I cited some numbers from the corporate sector. Wherever you look, whether you look in professional service firms, so I cited some numbers from uh, from you know law firms, and 1.2% of you know the partners being uh, being BAME. Um, so this is we should see them in numbers. Right now we are not seeing them in in numbers. I mean today uh, one of the judges on the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom uh, came out and emphasizing the need for more diversity. Um, and this is this is just all over the place. I mean, there just isn't enough diversity. You look at the top of any organizations, whether it is the NHS, the diversity or the diplomatic service, and you just don't see enough diversity. So if we are serious about this, we should set targets and we should try to inc- improve these numbers. There always seems to be this sort of, you talked about mentoring, there always seems to be this issue of sort of representation, right? So, and it seems like a sort of chicken and egg problem, especially when you're starting with a very white institution. So how do you make it an attractive and inclusive place for non-white people to work at an organization? Well, how there are lots of different ways in which you can make an organization more inclusive. And 
it, it boils down to changing the culture of the organization. And culture, of course, depends on, you know, numbers uh, again. How many people do you have of a particular? Are they simply, you know, a curiosity? Um, are they are they integrated? So colored blindness, for example, does not work. Okay? So you cannot say that okay, we are going to treat everyone the same regardless of color because there are there is a marginalized minority in organizations, and we need to be aware of that, and we need to close the gap. Okay? Um, and one of the ways of closing that gap is by integrating. So forming teams, um, giving opportunities to uh, BAME people to lead teams uh, for other opportunities so that the somatic norms in organizations are challenged. Somatic norms simply mean that, you know, who, what is the profile of a person that we associate with a particular uh, position? And right now, if you think of, if I ask you to think of a Cambridge professor, what image comes to your mind? If I ask you to think of a senior British civil servant, what is the image that comes to your mind? And of course, the image that comes to your mind is one that you have seen most often. And you have also seen that on media. So we need to change all that. And we need to um, you know, of course, I mentioned some of the practices, mentoring, uh, diversity task forces, and, and take this as a real challenge and turn our managers into champions of, uh, of diversity. And until we do that, you know, we are not going to make progress. So you, you mentioned the university and that, that's a perfect uh, lead in. So what about the university? what is on the cards what are we as an institution doing well and um you know what should we be doing better well in terms of the university uh one of the things that we have started doing is recognizing that there is a problem so for the past three years or so i have acted as the race equality champion for uh, for the university and in that i have had several awkward conversations i have also had absolute revelations in terms of where we are and where we need to go. Um, so there have been absolutely stunning uh, encounters with senior members of the university and of course with junior members of, uh, of the university as well. Um, just, just showing how far we still have to go in, uh, in recognizing that there is actually a problem and in addressing the implicit biases that we are all walking around with. I mean, the university, um, I mean, thanks to its, uh, its 800-year-old uh, history, does things in a particular way. But if you look at the top management of the university, it is entirely white. Um, after 800 years, uh, Oxbridge appointed the first black female master of a college in uh, in the form of Sunita Alain. Um, so, and, and, you know, so why is that is the question. And again, the myths of meritocracy, of efficiency, um, you know, uh, come to come to the fore to obscure the real dynamics of that. And this is not just top management. When I, so we, we hold an annual dinner for, uh, for BAME people, uh, but of course, right? non-BAME people, white people are also invited uh, to that. The vice chancellor participates uh, in that. Um, now, 
when I ask many of my colleagues, BAME colleagues, to come to that dinner, uh, they're not all, but many of them have the reaction that why would they want to go, come to a BAME dinner? Mm. They wouldn't be caught dead in such a place. Mm. That is because the category is still stigmatized. Mm. We need to eliminate that stigma, just as, you know, I mean, the women's struggle uh, has managed to do that. So women today are not ashamed of going to a women-only uh, networking event, for example. BAME people, a lot of BAME people uh, still are. So there is, there is a stigma that is attached to that. A lot of BAME people do not disclose their ethnic uh, background when they are filling out HR forms um, when they are recruited. And, and again, it is because this is, they think that they're going to be discriminated against on, uh, on that basis, and they're not going to get the opportunities. And again, when we look at the top of major organizations around the UK, you know, they, they have a point that yes, there is discrimination on the basis of, uh, of this difference. What has been the feedback from the student and staff community? So one thing that has really come up in the wake of uh, BLM is that we have gone to our students. Most colleges have gone to, our, uh, to their students and asked, um, you know, whether things are how they would like them to be. And the feedback has been that they would like more diversity in pastoral care. They would like colleges to hire more uh, diverse fellows. And, and if you look at, you know, college fellowships, again, you know, some colleges might be doing better than others, but in many colleges, uh, there is just very, very little diversity and students notice that. And by the way, the performance of minority students goes up significantly if they are getting tutored or uh, or getting pastoral care from uh, from people who look like them in terms of the uh, academic staff in the university um, an important figure to notice is that when you come in as a lecturer the proportion of bame lecturers is about the same as the proportion of bame people in the united kingdom so about 14% but when you reach the top, which is professor level, it falls down to only 7%. So if you are BAME, you are less likely to be promoted to full professor. These are things that the university needs to address. So, and, and the pastoral care, the hiring of more diversity uh, in, in the fellowships of colleges are again things that, uh, that need to be addressed. So going forward, what are your hopes for the university and what do you think you, as part of your role, what do you think you are going to try and implement over the coming years? So we have a plan and we have KPIs. What we have done is we have prepared dashboards right, for all the major schools of the university. And a lot of colleges are showing interest in that too. So on the dashboards, we should be able to see you know, on various measures uh, whether we are making progress or not. Now, this is something completely new and it has taken us a long time to come up with these dashboards. It has involved lots of different conversations with heads of schools and we want to implement them. 
as uh, as soon as possible and um, so this is this is something that uh, i'm very much looking forward to and uh, and i'm also looking forward to the university recognizing and the top brass of the university recognizing that there is a problem that needs to be solved and putting pressure uh, on 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 uh, schools colleges uh, the headhunters that we employ to fill senior positions and i think you know some progress is being made um, i would like there to be more progress but i hopefully we will gain some momentum as we continue thank you for taking the time to speak to us about these really critical issues of our time not at all uh, thank you very much for asking me to because uh, you know i mean the more awareness we can create about these things um, you know i mean some of the some of the uh, numbers that i cited the figures that i cited i mean for a lot of people they are quite shocking um because they just don't imagine that things are as bad as they are because again we just believe that our organizations are fundamentally meritocratic and uh, so the numbers become you know difficult to justify one final question thinking about meritocracy how have organizations managed to escape scrutiny for so long i think organizations have managed to escape scrutiny for a long period of time because of the two myths that i mentioned early on which was the fundamental belief that we are a meritocratic society we are a meritocratic organization and the fundamental belief that in this system uh, capitalism all organizations naturally move towards greater efficiency and if there are any kinks in the system they will be automatically ironed out except that these kinks do not get ironed out and organizations are not as meritocratic as they would have us believe so it is the perpetuation of these myths it is the deep imprint uh, entrenchment of these myths in terms of you know what we teach in universities you know the articles that we read in the harvard business review or the wall street journal or financial times they peddle this myth over and over again if somebody becomes successful we try to learn um, you know from them the secret of their success and it is hardly ever um, you know an analysis of the socio-economic conditions that made made it possible uh, for them and the implicit biases that um, that exist in the organization that made it possible so you know i mean just to give you an example we are all extremely happy to criticize and condemn racism as an abstract concept out there right and we do that in the university as well when i ask many of my white colleagues to give me specific instances in their workplace of racism and implicit bias resulting in non-meritocratic decisions they struggle to tell me so white privilege is something that is deeply entrenched deeply institutionalized it is very difficult to differentiate it from organizational processes and and routines that appear meritocratic so it is it is deeply buried these things are deeply buried under the facade of meritocracy and efficiency and that is why they escape scrutiny 
That's it from us at the We Are The University podcast. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from and give us a five-star rating.